Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, welcome everyone to Live Talk, our exclusive live, live uh, broadcast of uh, discussion of the, about the pituitary world. Uh, and I'm here with uh, my friend and partner and uh, co-founder, Dr. Lewis Blevins, uh, who just finished clinic, right? That's correct. Another busy day. Yep. Yeah, terrific. So um, I thought today we would start the discussion about uh, brain fog. We published uh, last week an article from our uh, contributor, Linda Rio, who's a, a, a family therapist uh, and mental health expert and author. And she wrote a very nice article about brain fog being that is a condition that is often mentioned by pituitary patients and they bring this up. Uh, so uh, we chatted about it. We thought it was important to uh, to publish something on it uh, from her perspective. And we thought that today we would follow up and get the uh, medical perspective from Dr. Blevins uh, on brain fog. And uh, I thought to start the discussion, I uh, we've been, uh, as you know, uh, Dr. Blevins, we've been testing um, chat GPT, uh, the new AI uh, Thing. So today I asked uh, ChatGPT to tell us what brain fog is. Well, let's let's hear it. I'm yeah, very, hear it. Uh, so, very excited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was interesting. It wrote actually four very short um, paragraphs. So I'll read what, uh, what ChatGPT says it is. Uh, this is it. So brain fog is a common term used to describe a feeling of mental cloudiness, confusion, and difficulty concentrating on remembering things. It is a non-medical term used to describe a collection of symptoms that affect cognitive function, including memory, focus, and decision-making abilities. People experiencing brain fog may feel like their thoughts are slow or that they are unable to think clearly. Brain fog can be caused by a variety of factors, including sleep deprivation, stress, anxiety, depression, hormonal changes, medication side effects, and certain medical conditions such as chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. It can also be a, a symptom of more serious conditions such as concussion or a neurological disorder. It goes on to say symptoms of brain fog can include difficulty concentrating, forgetfulness, confusion, slow thinking, and a feeling of being mentally drained or exhausted. It can also cause physical symptoms such as headaches, dizziness, and, uh, dizziness and fatigue. Treatment for brain, tug, for brain fog depends on the underlying cause. It may, be, it may involve lifestyle changes, such as getting enough sleep, reducing stress, improving diet and exercise habits, and in some cases, medication or therapy may be recommended to address an underlying medical or mental health condition. What do you think? That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's a, it's remarkable how Chat GPT can give a very succinct, accurate explanation of uh, what people feel based yeah. on it's combing the internet for information and yeah. uh, and summate that so so well. I like mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I you know honestly, I was really impressed because I thought, oh well, I, maybe I should. <clears throat> You know, write something to it would have taken me, you know, about an hour. This took yeah. exactly like 35 seconds to come up. So, you know, grammatically, it's even correct because you're not supposed to use a word to describe the, the word. So, you know, you can't say brain fog is when your thoughts are foggy. They say yeah. when your thoughts are cloudy. So it's yeah. very, very correct. It's very insightful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the interesting thing that I've been reading about AI and, and chat GPT or the, the one, the Bing, you know, the Microsoft one, is that it if it's if there's a lot of garbage on the internet, obviously on on a on a, uh, on a subject, it will report on that as well. So it doesn't recognize what yeah. be, may be inaccurate or untruthful or or, or irrelevant, Mis even. irrelevant information. Not, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, so that's, yeah, we all know what fog is, you know, in the Bay Area, we see that almost all the time in the summertime and sometimes yeah. during the winter. And, you know, 
when you when we think of fog, it's like we can't see through it, so things aren't clear. Yeah, and yet somehow we've related this sense of vision to our thoughts that we can't yeah. think clearly, and and our thoughts are foggy and all foggy and all of that. And yeah. it makes perfect sense that we would look for something that gives the best explanation for what we might be thinking or or mental faculties being in decline and all of that. So it's an unusual term. It's one that everybody understands. Yes. Um, Even though, even though no one can really tell, give you a good definition, chat GPT probably just gave the best definition I've ever heard of it, but uh, it means something different to everybody. My patients sometimes mean that they can't remember things. So memory disturbance is different. Some mm-hmm. some say that they, they're forgetful or that they can't organize their thoughts or they can't do complex calculations like balancing their checkbook or um, multitasking, for example, where people used to be able to multitask before. Um, yeah, it it's seems pretty like nebulous. A, yeah, it's an, it almost it feels to me like it's a catch-all phrase that people use yeah. to describe uneasiness, I mean, the mental uneasiness, or, yeah. or, and I don't know if uneasiness is, but like you say, not seeing things uh, clearly, which, you know, which describes fogs, fog perfectly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's also just like chest pain. You could ask a hundred people what it means to have chest pain. You get a hundred different answers. And, yes. um, and that's where, you know, if you show up in emergency with chest pain, the doctor is going to ask you very specific questions just because some diseases have certain patterns of chest pain, but everybody interprets chest pain differently. Some people may say squeezing, others may say crushing, others may say sharper, fascinating or what have you. And I think we all see brain fog differently as well. So it's Mm -hmm. important when you're talking about any symptom and sign, especially something nebulous like brain fog, that you relate to your physician precisely what you mean, because that might prove helpful leading to further evaluation and management for whatever that condition might be. Yeah, and you know, I think that's an interesting point because if, as a patient, some of the most difficult things to do, for me at least, is to describe pain. What is it? What kind of pain is it? My yeah. God. So it's, just, it's almost impossible. So you, you, you stick to the things that you think the other person will understand or the physician will understand. Well, it's, it feels like pressure or it feels like somebody's, you know, putting a needle in, you know, in that area. But that, that's not even accurate because, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, thing to have to do. Yeah. So brain fog is fairly common in pituitary disorder patients, but it's, yeah. not, it's not common where you might think. Uh, for example, people think if their thyroid levels are low and they're hypothyroid, they might have brain fog, but actually they don't. Uh, there have been plenty of studies in hypothyroid patients your, your thoughts are slow, but they're still accurate and they're clear. Uh, and the studies in hypothyroid patients, especially children, have shown that academic performance increases because people are more hyper-focused, their thoughts are slower, they're not distractible and things like that. So Interesting. Uh, a kid whose academic performance suddenly goes from routine or mundane or C-level who suddenly becomes an A student and is tired and fatigued and gaining weight probably has hypothyroid hypothyroidism, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're hyperthyroid or on too much thyroid hormone or have a, a, one of the conditions that causes hyperthyroidism, that causes distractibility, but the thoughts are still clear. Uh, and uh, so it's not, not related really to thyroid disease at all. The areas where I see it are patients with hypercortisolism or Cushing syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, high levels of cortisol are toxic to brain cells, especially in the, the memory forming areas. And you can see decreased hippocampal size and, and they, they say patients seem to have, you know, depression, anxiety and, and mood disorders and, and, uh, memory problems. And all of that can, can be related by patients as a brain fog. Yeah. Uh, another, uh, condition is growth hormone deficiency. Uh, it's been showed that there's some cognition decline in patients with growth hormone deficiency and you can see improvements when they take growth hormone and their brain fog lifts, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another another condition for, as well. We yeah. often see it. For me, you know, it was the, and I had never, I don't, that I remember not ever hearing or thinking about the term brain fog before I had a lot of connections and contacts with 
people in the in the in the world of pituitary disease mm-hmm. and patients, uh, pituitary patients. But uh, for me, it's always been um, when I'm tired, my brain doesn't want to work. Yeah, <laughs> but that's right. been since I've been 20 years old. That's nothing new, and, and that's everybody, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. So it's difficult yeah. for me to discern what how how it affects us. Honestly, I don't think I've experienced it. Unless I'm tired. When I'm tired, I, you know, yeah. I, you know, you can't write, you can't think. You go, oh my God, you know, just I'm going to go watch a TV because I, I'm I can't do anything else, you know. Particularly in the evenings and things. Yeah. So, well, I, uh, I I was thinking about it and I, I wanted to relate a couple of instances. I'm fairly sure that most of us who are going through our training have brain fog at some point. Yeah. And and I, I was thinking about this this morning, knowing that we were going to talk about this topic. Um. During my internship, you know, we were working 100, 120 hours a week, up all night in the hospital, no sleep yeah. every third night. Uh, the night before a call, you try to do something fun so you don't sleep just because you know you won't be able to do anything fun the night on call. And the night after call, you're so exhausted, you're afraid to go to bed early because if you wake up at two or three in the morning, then you're restless and you can't sleep. Yeah. So you're cr- chronically tired, very fatigued, overworked. And I remember on a couple of occasions, you, you know, you're on call, then you work until six o'clock the next day after you've been up all night, you go in the next morning after a night of crashed good night's sleep. And you look at your chart and you think, my gosh, what was I doing? Why did I order this? I ordered the wrong thing. I ordered the wrong dose or whatever. So, but in the moment you feel that you're clear and that you have the clarity and, uh, when I think back at it, that's probably brain fog where you think so. so in, in other words, sometimes you think you're doing a good job, but you're not. Yeah. Uh, just because you're so tired and so sleep deprived and so stressed out. My only other experience was when I decided to divorce my wife. Um, the process of going through the divorce created a lot of stress and um, a lot of consternation. And of course, attorneys never make that easy either. No. And I was really more irritated with my attorney and her attorney than I was her <laughs> during the divorce <laughs> process. But, and I went through this period of, you know, you, you fall asleep watching TV and then you get up and go to bed and you lay there for three or four hours and you finally go to sleep. And then you wake up in the early morning and you fight to get your rest, you know, but I kept it together and was working fairly well and thought things were going pretty well at work until one day I suddenly emerged from the brain fog. And it was when I was sort of the stress level was down, the divorce was almost final and I was doing okay. And I remember being at work thinking, oh, what just happened to me? Suddenly I'm back. I have this clarity and I didn't even think I was gone. And I didn't think I had the mental uh, um, fogginess, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but it was clearly there because now I had this new experience or this new me or this new mental faculty that I could compare over what I'd had for several months. And that was yeah. due to stress. So chat GPT said stress was a common cause. And it is yeah. any illness that causes you stress, any life event can cause the brain fog and you may not know you have it. And that's yeah. where I think that we as human beings could make mistakes and get ourselves in trouble. If we don't realize that we're being affected by yeah. something around us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. It's sort of the analogy of, uh, um, um, Oh God! I just had it in my head, and I can't remember what the yeah. Now there you go, brain fog on my yeah. On and I, no, but I was going to say I remember. I just remembered. Yeah, the analogy of when you when you have in your vision is declining, and you get new glasses, or you do the laser. You you have no idea how badly you saw before your eyes were fixed. Yeah, and that happened. Exactly. In, you know when I did my eyes. So yeah. that's that's a uh, probably a, a good analogy. Do you? Are you aware of any uh, research into brain fog and specifically pituitary disease or anything that's been studied? Because it's so it's so common the discussion, you know, yeah. in, in groups and and uh, you know, it's hard conferences. It's so hard to quantify it, and since everybody has a different opinion of what brain fog means, if you sent yeah. if you sent the questionnaires out, you get all sorts of different answers and and. And, you know, reports of what brain fog was would be all over the place. And mm-hmm. when, when people would then do an intervention, you would have some people getting better, other people not getting better. It'd be all sorts of uh, unusual um, 
issues issues with regards to doing the statistical research and trying to figure out um, how to make sense of it all. It's like most quality of life studies. If you look at if you look at the quality of life for acromegaly, which people think was designed and was very specific for acromegaly, people with any pituitary disease would probably test for low quality of life on the screen for acromegaly mm -hmm. or on the screen for growth hormone deficiency or on the screen for Cushing's because there's so many final common symptoms, not to mention brain fog, but brain fog, fatigue, decreased energy, weight gain or weight loss, loss of appetite, uh, lack of exercise capacity, Mm -hmm. the, the top 10 diagnoses I see in clinic have many of those symptoms in common. Uh, so quality of life instruments aren't as, I mean, I think they're reliable if you take acromegalic patients and, and do a quality of life, do an intervention, do the same quality of life. I think you can get some information about, you know, whether there's been improvement there, yeah. but the symptoms are still nonspecific and people tend to interpret them differently. And, um, the, the, the wording of the questions means something differently. And I think a brain fog questionnaire would do the same. So it's going to be difficult to do research in that area. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. uh, just defining it alone would be an issue. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a study that was done, the Nottingham Health Profile, which is an early study to um, uh, assess for growth hormone deficiency with a quality of life. And it was written in England, right? So uh, the, the question... As I remember it, I could be wrong, but was, uh, do you have any difficulty walking to the post? And in England, that means walking to the post office downtown yes. from your home. Yeah. Well, some people live farther away from the post office than others. So in, in America, we might think, well, what post are you talking about? The fence post, the telephone <laughs> post, or, you know, so the, the questions <laughs> people don't know how to interpret it. They're going to answer one way or another, and you're going to get all sorts yeah. of scatter, if you will, in the data. Um, but uh, I always laugh when I think about that, that questionnaire. It was probably the first good attempt to do a quality of life study in patients with growth hormone deficiency. It worked. It was one of the, prof it was one of the profiles that uh, allowed the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to see data that growth hormone actually improves quality of life. It's one of the things that got Growth hormone approved. Approved, wow. Everything else we've learned about the benefits of growth hormone, or at least most of it, have come on the heels of that approval where people have done additional studies yeah. to look at that, uh, including what are the benefits of growth hormone brain function that sort of resolve this brain fog issue. Yeah. So, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. So it's very interesting. I'm not sure um, the best way to research the topic because everybody's going to define it differently. And there's so many different final common illnesses that can lead to stress and lead to brain fog. So, so if let's say a patient comes to you and they the report, is, is there something that you tell them or I know it depends on the issue, on the issue, obviously, but, uh, yeah. or that a patient can be referred, referred to someplace or go someplace to get some yeah. So in my practice, there are three groups of people that have brain fog. One are the Cushing's patients. So if they're hypercortisolemic, I tend to sort of focus on that. Usually yeah. your cortisol levels have to be pretty high or high or, or mildly high for a long period of time before you're going to see those problems. Um, the second group of people are those who have a history of pituitary tumors and surgery or radiotherapy who uh, may have growth hormone deficiency. So if I see someone that I hadn't seen in a while or hadn't seen before and they talk about brain fog, I'm, I'm prompted to think about checking an IGF-1. If that's in the low part of the normal range or frankly low, we'll do a growth hormone stimulation test. Most of the time, if they're brain fog, we treat them, they get better. Yeah. So, so that was going to say that it improves yeah. once you have treatment. Yeah. And the third group of my patients who have brain fog are those with head trauma. And uh, we have a fairly big head trauma center uh, at uh, SFGH, San Francisco General Hospital. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's a, a center for neurorehabilitation in Emeryville, and our neurology group sees a lot of head trauma patients. So those patients have a, a 5 to 25% risk of one or more pituitary hormone deficiencies. Most common deficiency is growth hormone. So I see a lot of people who have history head trauma, growth hormone deficiency, who report brain fog as well. Unfortunately, in that group of people, sometimes the brain fog is due to actual brain injury and, yeah. uh, and cerebral dysfunction as a result of a head trauma incident. 
but they tend to use the term and I don't usually ask about it. They tend to volunteer. Sometimes I'll ask about it, but they'll often volunteer brain fog because they're, they're sensing that their clouded thought processes or foggy mm-hmm. thought, thought, thought processes and, and mental functions are, uh, are, uh, at least in most of the time apparent to them or apparent to others who might report it. Yeah. Interesting. Sometimes it takes a spouse or a family member to notice that you're not quite right in the head, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It is difficult to sort of self, uh, be self-aware of some of that. It is. Yeah. And my experiences during my divorce and residency are examples of that. Cause you know, you yeah. feel like you're on uh, firing on all cylinders as the old saying goes. And, and it's not until you sort of emerge, you realize, wow, that was a, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to go back to that vision analogy, it's the same thing. You just all of a sudden see detail that you know you never thought was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so um, I know that you had a couple of interesting cases that you wanted to chat about too, uh, some uh, patients. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. We see a lot of interesting patients. You, you know, we referenced my busy clinic earlier, and I, the first, the, I have to admit, the thing that came to my head was the old McDonald's restaurant signs where they had the, the little little number that they changed that said like three million served, served yeah, 50 million, 70 million. I thought, wouldn't it have been interesting to have done that throughout my career to actually kept track of all the patients that I've seen? Yeah, uh, because it's been well over a hundred thousand probably since the first time I received an MD degree. Yeah. Uh, a wow. Lot of, a lot of experience dealing with people. Um, so there is a, you know, sort of to give a, a preface on it, I, as you know, I'm studying Arabic language. And, yes. Uh, I'm in the, in the throes of it and I've been really hard. I've been paying attention to it for years now. Uh, but I've been really hardcore studying, attempting to learn the language and become fluent probably for about six months. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm looking at the difference between verb structures in English and also Arabic and, you know, what they call their uh, different tenses and then how you change from past to future to and present tense and irregular verbs and hollow verbs and all that. It's just fascinating stuff. It's a it's a nice little yeah. past time to be learning a language, but yeah. Arabic especially, it's a beautiful language. Mm. And it, I was thinking about uh, the, you know, what the pituitary tumor patient might say. And, um, you know, like I have a pituitary tumor or I had a pituitary tumor. Some will have a pituitary tumor. And, um, you know, it's also possible to have had a tumor and still have a tumor, you know, so it's all, it's all kind of interesting when you think in English and compared to Arabic. And the reason this came up to me today is that I've been assisting a gentleman who's probably going to be a future patient. He may or may not. He's in another healthcare system, hmm. but uh, someone that I've been helping to sort of coordinate a workup. And uh, he, the gentleman had an MRI that suggested a, an, an empty cell, but they really didn't say much about it. And uh, I, I suggested you've got to have an MRI and you need some work up to figure out what's going on. Uh, and this was an incidental finding. And it, it turns out that the, I looked at the MRI today and he clearly had a pituitary tumor at some point. Uh, so it's sort of a past tense. His cella was very enlarged. It was irregular. Uh, there was scar tissue in the middle of it. And uh, the stalk was deviated. And it all looked like a, at one point he had a very large pituitary tumor. And you see tissue in the cell. And you're not sure is this normal pituitary or is this dead tissue tumor or whatever. Turns out his prolactin level is still a little high. It's in the 80s. Uh, so not only did he have a tumor in the past, I think still has residual tumor cells because the prolactin is high mm. uh, and, um, you know, indicates he probably once had a big, large prolactinoma that infarcted and he's left with microscopic residual, but still viable cells and probably needs treatment for that. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, probably has growth hormone deficiency and maybe a couple of other hormone issues as well. The other thing I noticed is that the TSH level is a little high and the T4 is normal, more normal than it probably should be for a person who has such a large empty cella. And it made me wonder, was his tumor also one of these tumors that secrete TSH and 
and prolactin? Was he ever hyperthyroid and didn't know it? And then the tumor rotted and he's left with a little bit of a TSH elevation and, uh, and a healthy T4 despite having a, a big empty space in the center of his head where the pituitary tumor Pitu- used to be. So it's sort of uh, an interesting patient and uh, I'm glad to be able to help this gentleman try to resolve uh, what's actually been going on with the pituitary and uh, what he might need in the future. And you can treat that with medication that the gentleman could be treated with. Yes, I think I think that I would probably, and you know, we've made a recommendation and talked to his endocrinologist about it, but I think he probably should go on covergaline and follow those thyroid functions very closely uh, as well. Yeah. So it's it's nice to help people, you know. Even though I've never met this person, it's nice to to help. I'm and I, I help I help a number of people, but also still ins- insist that they go see their endocrinologist. My my advice is friendly advice, you know. Yeah. Uh, I prefer to see people if I'm going to get involved in making a diagnosis or whatever. But uh, you know, in this case, it was another physician who asked me to. to oh, okay. So give, I was going to ask you how, give how they find you. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. Another physician that I know asked to give an opinion, so oh. glad to help out. But but it got me to thinking about you know we we see occasionally patients who have had a tumor, and the only way you can recognize so so for example just like this patient, people show up with a very large irregular empty cella and maybe one or more pituitary hormone deficits, and if if you've seen enough people like I have the you know hundred thousand served in my career or whatever. Yeah. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's 60,000. I don't know the number I should, I should guesstimate it, but you know, you when could you probably it, go back and you yeah. know, make a, you know, sort of come up with a rough guess. I know how busy yeah. I've been in the outpatient setting and I know how busy I've been on the inpatient setting too. So I could probably guesstimate it, but, but it's a lot. Uh, and, um, but one of the things that you see when, when you've practiced as I have for a long time, you know, 30 years with as a fully trained endocrinologist and I saw my first pituitary patient five years before that. So 35 years I've done pituitary endocrinology. If you see large volumes of patients over that period of time, you get a sense for the natural history of illnesses and other things. So what are things like when they're first presenting? What was it like before they presented? What symptoms was the patient having? What was the treatment course? What's the outcome of the course? What do things look like 10 or 20 years later after a patient's been treated? And uh, the this scan looks like a person who once had a very large tumor, and mm. somehow it wasn't diagnosed in in life. And it looks to me like the individual has a residual disease and probably needs to have that treated. And then the little caveats is okay. So how do we interpret these thyroid functions, which are abnormal? Uh, you know what's going on there? You know that that, that might need additional attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what about this IGF-1 level that's in the low part of the normal range? Is that just normal for this person, or does this person have growth hormone deficiency because of the tumor? So um, those sort of little caveats and the way to steer your way through a medical history or a radiographic finding in this case, uh, supplemented with lab studies, comes, I think, from lots and lots of experience managing pituitary patients. And um you don't get that from a general endocrinologist. Uh, general endocrinologists are tremendous. They've all been trained in pituitary disease, but most don't have a lot of experience in pituitary so, clinics. So it's like um, recognizing the patterns, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. And Fact pituitary for... cases probably represent less than 5% of what a general endocrinologist does. So it gets back to what we've been saying all along. There are pituitary centers of excellence. And if you can avail yourself of the opportunity to be seen in a pituitary center of excellence, it's probably worth it. And I say that as a pituitary endocrinologist, because that's what I do for a living. And I know yeah. that we, we understand the small caveats of disease that most other physicians, including endocrinologists don't, because we live with it. And, you know, we get to see people and assess the history and watch the treated natural history and look at final outcomes and what a scan looks like. So that when someone shows up with this type of an image, you can piece it together very well and sort mm-hmm. of know where they are and what their needs might be. Well, yeah, like there's no substitute for experience. The old, uh, uh, was it the 10,000 hour rule for <laughs> that the yeah. Malcolm Gladwell talks about? You probably need a lot more than 10,000 hours, but uh, it's that, that, uh, that experience that makes it um, 
so critical. And, and like you're saying, it's like also like I was thinking when you said, you know, patterns, I, I thought of forensic <clears throat> accounting, you yeah. know, where the, these guys do so much of that, that they recognize these anomalies and numbers that they can zero in, in you know, immediately to see, to look for, yeah. for anomalies and accounting or fraud or, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. Yeah. They, they, they spot it, spot it like a hawk flying above. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause they see it so much. It's just a question of recognizing the patterns. But, uh, but in your, in the case of, uh, I, I would think that with pituitary uh, medicine because it's so complicated and there's so many factors you're also al always um bal having a balancing act it's it's like the art of balancing people's hormones you yeah. know i don't know if that's accurate or not but yeah it feels that way to me from yeah. from the layperson's perspective you know you have you to know, look at a lot of things People may say, well, he's trying to generate referrals to himself and to other <laughs> centers, but it's it's not that because I, I look at the other side of the coin. You know, the physician should recognize his or her strengths, but they also need to be acutely aware of their weaknesses. You know, I'm yeah. a, I am a board certified, trained endocrinologist, and right now I'm going through the recertification process in endocrinology, and I know and I tell my patients I don't have any business giving you any advice about your diabetes, your lipids, your obesity management, and a, and a number of other endocrine disorders. I don't have, if I get certified by the board as a general endocrinologist, it's kind of a farce because I don't know diabetes. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know the names of the medicines, how to spell them or even say them, that people are coming into me uh, having taking for their diabetes. And and yet there are diabetologists who know all of this stuff and know how to manage diabetes acutely and subacutely and chronically long-term. That's not me. So I'm pretty confident that those folks don't manage pituitary disease the way yeah. I do because yeah. I can't manage diabetes the way they do. And uh, many times endocrinologists like pituitary cases because it's like, oh, these are fun. This is different. It's different from my usual diabetes or osteoporosis or weight management patient. And um, I don't think that's always best for the patient, um, you know, unless you have a really astute clinician who's good at everything. But those are few and far between mm -hmm. because of the expansion of knowledge and drugs and, and approaches and guidelines and all of that. There's no one endocrinologist who can keep up with it all. Yeah. Uh, if it is, they're a... They're a um, a unicorn so to speak yeah there yeah. are unicorns out there probably but uh you know the uh, the uh, uh the clinician of the past who knew how to manage everything has probably been destroyed by the expansion of knowledge of medicine and different medical therapeutics uh, and things like that so yeah i like to stay in my lane but i also like for other doctors to do the same and and uh, send their patients to me when they have pituitary disease yeah yeah so what do you think, so having said that, you know, the, the need for, you know, referral systems that, that get the patients to you before, before they spend too much time going back and forth, yeah. uh, which happens a lot. Do we have enough centers of excellence? I mean, if you were to say we need, you know, we need more uh, neuroendocrinologists and, and experienced with with just pituitary uh, medicine, is, is is that something that uh, needs we need to work on to get more people interested in it? Or uh... well, we've got a couple problems, and I've been thinking about how to solve solve one of them in California. The biggest yeah. problem is there aren't a lot of pituitary centers of excellence um, nationwide. Nationwide. Yeah. There, there are a lot of centers, and there are a lot of centers that think of themselves as excellent, but just because they call themselves a pituitary center of excellence doesn't mean they have the best surgeons. Their yeah. surgeons may not do enough cases to be considered qualified, but yeah. who's to say who's qualified? Anybody who's a neurosurgeon could operate on pituitary cases, but that doesn't mean they're going to be good at it. Yeah. And they may not have the volume, and they may not have the local volume to ever be good at it. You know, if someone does if someone does 50 cases a year, you know, it's going to take them 10 years to get over 500, which is probably the, you know, 300 to 500 is the cutoff to be a good surgeon. If you want to be a great surgeon, you got to do over a thousand. So it might take that person 20 years to get yeah. to a thousand cases. 
yeah. if they did 50 a year and 50 a year is a big volume, really many neurosurgeons are doing 20 or 30 a year uh, and still doing cases and probably should be uh, transferring those cases to the care of other more experienced people. Yeah. Then you've got the question about, okay, so how many cases, if you don't do that number of cases, how are you going to get to those number of cases if you send your patients elsewhere? Well, you know, pituitary disease requires super specialization. So you probably should send them elsewhere and let those centers train the future pituitary surgeons in the, in the country. Yeah. Uh, and there's a fair bit of that. But with that said, you know, I, I like to put neurosurgeons in different tiers. So there's the top tier neurosurgeons. There's maybe three or five neurosurgeons in this country that I've put in the top tier. Then there's tier two neurosurgeons, and there's a lot of those. There's a few tier three surgeons and, a, and some tier four and, and further out surgeons as well. To me, tier one and two surgeons are the ones that I would, I, I'd want a tier one surgeon for myself. Yeah. Probably a tier two surgeon would be good. The, the second problem comes uh, in that uh, even though there are a fair number of centers, people can still travel. You know, you can get in your car or on an airplane and usually get to a center fairly reasonably inexpensively, depending <laughs> on your wherewithal and your and your financial abilities. You know, not everybody can afford to 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 spend a thousand dollars on travel round trip and maybe more than that if family's going in a couple nights in a hotel. Maybe you're looking at two to three thousand. Yeah. Not not everybody in America can afford that. So yeah. the but the problem is that so we, we have large, vast areas of the country that aren't covered by pituitary centers. Uh, you know, we look at all of Northern California, the cent, there's one, there's a center in Washington, in Seattle, yeah, Seattle there's a yeah. center in Portland, Oregon, and then you've got our center. So between Portland, Oregon and us, that's a lot of mileage that there's mm -hmm. no pituitary center of excellence. Yeah. And then you have to go to Colorado to go from west of here to find the next pituitary center of excellence. So that's a lot of ground to cover. So one of the things that I have been trying to think through is how do I establish a network of physicians, uh, endocrinologists in our geographic referral area. Now we get patients from all over the country and even the world, you know, we're operating on people from uh, the Middle East and you know, traveling from the Middle East for therapy here. Yeah, no, and we've heard uh, through pituitary uh, world news that people are contacting us yeah. uh, to go to the centers, which is great from all, all over the world. Yeah. But for the, for my geographic area of referral, you know, all the way, you know, parts of Montana, Idaho, up into Oregon, sometimes Washington, especially Eastern Washington, uh, Nevada, mm -hmm. uh, Arizona, uh, we, we see people all the way, all the way through California, though there are centers in Southern California. Some people fly over those to get to us, but I'm thinking of establishing a network of endocrinologists that I know that I trust who I feel are, are reasonably successful in their area, who are also, I think, uh, academically oriented and establishing a network of people that I can work with in the community. Yeah. Uh, so that when we see patients who sort of reach stability in our program and just need long-term care and follow-up, we can invest them as helping locally to care for some of the people that live in their vicinity and they can do the surveillance, maybe have a treatment plan or a follow-up plan from us and do the surveillance and get the patients back to us when we, when we need to see them again. Yeah. Does uh, the telemedicine regulations and, and those um, things that changed during COVID that apparently are going back to the old, is that, would that have an effect on, on your, your availability for, or the availability, let's say, of a center of excellence? to other people outside the state or in the area that they may avail we, of your services? To, yeah, we're not uh, sure yet. The CARES, yeah. the CARES Act was passed. So back up before that. So before before COVID, we were doing telemedicine about 10, 15% of our visits, but they were limited yeah. to people in California. Yes. Uh, and then Trump passed an executive order, said you can do telemedicine across state lines. People shouldn't have to travel with the, you know, get on a plane or stay in hotels because of COVID and all this kind of stuff. So we're, you know, we and a lot of other people are doing telemedicine across state lines. And then that's contracted a bit, you know, mm -hmm. now that uh, the rules are you shouldn't do telemedicine across state lines. Because if I'm in, um, 
California at, at UCSF and you're in your home in, in Nevada and I do telemedicine with you, that's practicing medicine in Nevada without a license. Now, I think that's nonsense. So do mm-hmm. my patients and so does most everybody uh, around the world, you know, but they recognize Nevada has the right to look out for its citizens and make sure that people get medical care by doctors that aren't quacks that have tons of lawsuits against them. So, you know, it's all about States regulating the healthcare, uh, delivered in their state to make sure that patients are protected. It also has a lot to do with regulation of insurance because I presume your insurance comes from some entity in Nevada and not California. So, but, you know, people travel, you know, and, and it's said that medicine is practiced where the patient is at the time. So if you come to California, if you drive across the state line and make a video call, you're in California. So who yes. cares? it's ridiculous. You could drive two miles and we could do a telemedicine visit. It's legal. Go two miles the other way. It's illegal. So, you know, there are ways to get around it. But the, the, the fact of the matter is it's still the practice of medicine. And if I called you on the phone, that can't, that's, that's okay. Even though you're in Nevada and I'm here, I can change your prescriptions and everything. So the laws don't make any sense. No, no. but one of the laws that sort of allowed telemedicine to be more common uh, relates to Medicare, Medicaid services. And that was part of the cares act. I think it's called Mm -hmm. the cares act that Congress passed when Trump was president that allowed uh, it allowed for Medicare and Medicaid patients to receive telemedicine services instead of having to be seen in person. Now, in spite of that, a lot of patients still get seen live because somebody needs to listen to their heart, check their pulse, check their legs for swelling, listen to their lungs, pal- palpate their abdomen or whatever. But there are specialties like mine where we can do 99% of what we do, if not more, by telemedicine. You know, yeah. I can't fill your thyroid, but I'm not a thyroid doctor, right? So yeah. Yeah. If I was a thyroid doctor, I'd be seeing patients live. But with pituitary disease, you know, we're focused on laboratory results, symptoms and signs, MRI results and all of that. So um, with the CARE Act expiring in about uh, probably two or three weeks, it's believed nobody knows whether Medicare and Medicaid are going to allow those services to still be provided. So Medicare, Medicaid patients, they may need to start traveling to a center of excellence again, instead of having telemedicine. Yeah. I'm hoping that they'll say uh, you can still do telemedicine because it is tremendous for patients and physicians yes. alike. It's just patients, don't, patients don't want to travel eight hours round trip for a doctor visit that takes 15 minutes or yeah. 20 minutes, you know. That, that where all of, all of it, like you're saying, could have been done. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't need to be in the same room. You live four hours away, so it's a trip a night in a hotel and a trip back, you know, so yeah. uh, that's an expensive round trip visit for a 20 yeah. minute doctor visit and you know, get your labs either done here or there or wherever. So we yeah. shouldn't be, we shouldn't be asking people to do this. Um, one of my neighbors who's very intelligent, he's a f- nuclear physicist, I think, but he's a physicist to say the you know, to say the least. And uh, he's from Scotland and he's extremely well trained and educated and, he was talking to me about this whole issue of telemedicine and seeing patients via telehealth. And he says, you know, COVID forced us to go to leap ahead 15 to 20 years and with our technologies and do things differently than we were doing just Mm -hmm. because of the fact that we could all get sick and potentially die from this illness. And he said, the biggest mistake we as a society could make would be to revert back to the way things were before tele, uh, before uh, COVID uh, pandemic started. Yeah, I agree with and that. And that would mean stopping telemedicine and going back to live in-person visits, which are, you know, kind of preposterous when you think about the the, th- the opportunities and the things we can do. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen to Medicare, Medicaid patients. Uh, uh, traditional fee for service insurances. I don't know what's going to happen with that. They probably are going to allow it because they were allowing it beforehand. Um and uh, I think that that will probably be able to continue. Um, I'm hoping that they don't sort of follow Medicaid and uh, Medicare off the cliff and take it away. Yeah, it's a, fasc- I- yeah it's a fascinating discussion uh, because of the, uh, you know, it's the whole technology moving so fast that people that need to legislate it don't understand it. Yeah, <laughs> so it's exactly. impossible to, so it's, out of, it's sort of out of control, but there's so many positive things that happen um, because of it, you know, and, and that really help people. Um, so, one of them is, access this is to, one of them. Yeah. One of them is access to medical care. And I will tell you that 
the problem that we used to have before the pandemic when we were seeing patients live is that people didn't want to get in their car and drive that four to eight hours or yeah. get on a plane and fly to the city for these short visits and have to worry about transportation costs, two or three days off of work, childcare coverage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So people, we didn't have as good a follow-up after pituitary surgery as we probably needed to have because people's health depends on follow-up. Pituitary tumors can recur. People yeah. need hormone adjustments and so on. Now that we've been doing telemedicine for three years, we have so much better follow-up and people who weren't getting their visits done before have come back because it's convenient to go to your local facility and get an MRI, your local Quest or LabCorp to get lab results, and then sit and do a telemedicine visit. And we're diagnosing people with recurrences of their tumors who haven't been back in five or 10 yeah. years. Just and and I will tell you, but having experienced the Quest, uh, you know, the labs where you can go anywhere, it's gotten so efficient. Yeah, where you can do this, the the, the schedule schedule your your lab draw online, uh, get there, do it. You know, it's it's usually there's areas that are close to home. The labs get done in a day or two. I mean, it's just amazing the logistics and how fine tuned those things are. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm sure there's room for improvement, but I'm assuming that your no show rate has improved tremendously from in person than. <laughs> Yeah, it was much, it was probably five percent uh, wow. uh, before That's the pandemic. A lot. It's pro well five to seven percent maybe. It was a lot, you know, when you yeah. count the last minute cancellations. You know, yeah, a, a, a cancellation 24 hours before a visit is almost the same as a no show. Oh yeah, you end up you with can't. a slot that's not filled. Yeah, you can't uh, fill it. Before the pandemic, if someone canceled 24 hours, it's like you just have an empty hole. Because people live so far away, you can't say, hey, I just had an opening for tomorrow. you got to be here in 12 hours. Yeah. But uh, with the uh, uh, telemedicine, if someone cancels, we've, we've always got another patient we can call right away and fit into that slot because people don't have to travel. They just need to make sure they yeah. can be available to do a video visit at that time. It's still a surprise, though. Even with the video visits, people still no-show. I think I had three no-shows this week, uh, and uh, we're not sure why. Yeah, but uh, it's very rare to have them. It's probably under one percent no show right now. Yeah, it's it's so, remarkable. Probably the the uh, sounds like it's a remarkable improvement. Yeah, I'm on track to see about two thousand two hundred patient visits this year, and probably wow. a, about f almost five hundred new patients if it keeps going the way it has for the yeah. rest of this calendar year. I think that's um, fantastic news. I know that you're working a lot harder, but yeah. you know, there's so many more people getting really good good care for their pituitary disease. That's what's that's what's important. And I hope we see, you know, the impact of all of this, all of the work that you do and the work that we're doing together to yeah. see if we can reduce the time to diagnosis and all those things that uh, would create such a difference. In, yeah, well, that's the goal and also providing yeah. the access. And this this uh patient visit numbers will be the highest ever. You know, the yeah. last three years have been the most productive ever for the pituitary program at UCSF. That's uh, fantastic. As far as outpatient visits is concerned. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I want to be able to continue to, to uh, serve as McDonald's does those many yeah. people. You yeah. know, I serve my patients. I'm taking care of them and, you know, I'm, I'm their, their servant to try to help yeah. with the health. Health. Well, I think you should definitely within reason. To, yeah, <laughs> but I, I think you should definitely try to calculate how many patients you've seen because like you probably you probably trace that you know some uh, come up with a very good uh, guess I would think of what that number is. Yeah, uh, I, I'm almost fearful of the number because yeah. I'm still learning, and you know you'd think after being this busy for so long you'd know everything, but it's not the case. Last year we had a couple. Gee, I've never seen that before. I didn't know that was possible kind of cases. So, you know, yeah, we still, you know, when, when you've seen everything, you think I've seen it all. And then you realize, ah, there's more to learn. So, yeah, uh, we've yeah. had several of those uh, in instances recently that uh, um, that I wasn't aware that could exist. But uh, here you go. And then when you look at the literature, it might be two or three case reports, you know, so it's. Wow. Been re been reported, but extremely rare nonetheless. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I can't believe that we're almost uh, at the end of the hour. Uh, 
here in their program. It goes uh, quickly with interesting discussions. Um, yeah, well, tell us yeah. what's new from your perspective about Pituitary World News. I, I know you're doing a lot of travel. Folks might want to hear sort of how busy you've been yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, as an ambassador for patients with pituitary diseases. Yeah, we've been busy with, uh, you know, publishing and, and uh, as you know, and uh, I know we have a few articles and one video coming up from what you, that you've just uh, sent me, MRI video, very interesting, that series. Uh but uh, yeah, there's a few um, uh, endocrine conferences coming up that are for us are very helpful because we get to meet a lot of people. We get to listen to a lot of interesting discussions. We get to select some of the things that we want to talk about and publish and amplify. Um, so it's always um, good to, for me, you know, they're usually three or four days. For me, one or two days is is enough to get, you know, to get to, to people and say hello and uh, and and have some discussions on possible collaborations. We, we you know, we talk about the ad, the advantage of collaborative approaches and how much better things are when people work together. So that's our goal to get people mm-hmm. to work with us and to work together to uh, to solve these common problems, these common common issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's. Um, so there's a few conferences. I, I am attending this one that's very interesting in uh, in Washington D.C. It's an orphan drug conference, and these are this is a rare disease. It's not just specific to pituitary, but very interesting from a learning perspective to see what it takes and what people are doing to to research and come up with uh, with orphan drugs mm-hmm. for rare diseases. It's a very interesting group of people that come in very interesting presentations. I like to see things that are happening in other categories that are still related to rare disease, but there's a lot of learning that you do and, and a lot of exposure to what we call in the, in the business of best practices. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these things that are working in other areas that could be working for us in the work that we, that you and I do mm-hmm. at Pituitary World News. So, so that from that end, is very very uh, interesting. And you know, these are typically extremely smart people that are that mm-hmm. are very cool to chat with and uh, and exchange ideas. And and uh, you know, it's amazing how many thoughts, how many ideas come from these sort of you know what they're called just quick coffee conversations or or. Uh, you know, not not a set meeting, but a an, an informal type setting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we we have a few of those coming up. There's one, uh, and then there's the endocrine conference in Chicago that I know we both are going to attend. That's yeah, a big the endo- <clears throat> endocrine society meeting. And then I know you're going to the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists meeting. And that is well. this coming week in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm looking forward to that as well. And then, the, and then it slows down a little bit through the summer. There's a few. There's a meeting uh, from the World Alliance uh, this year in October, uh, and then the one that I I really love going to because it's also so rewarding and so great is the Spanish Endocrine Conference in Spain, and that is a group of really a, a outstanding group of docs, and uh, uh, all. Uh, willing and able to work with us on our Spanish edition, which is mm-hmm. it's moving nicely now in, in the content development. So uh, always good things to learn at, at that one too. And, and uh, that is such an under, not Spain, but the rest of the Spanish speaking world, you know, Latin America specifically, uh, there's such an under, so underserved that anything that we can do to provide that information in, in, in their language so there's you know more awareness and more information and mm-hmm. more education. It's uh, it would be very helpful, but specifically directed to sp- uh, patients and other uh, healthcare professionals. So it's going to be a busy week. I think there's this sort of Sounds pent like up de- pent up demand for um, for meetings in person. I think people are really suffering from the Zoom mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> the Zoom exactly. life. You're going, oh my god, another Zoom meeting. But uh, yeah. So it's good. We've been doing Pituitary World News now for about nine years or so. Nine years, and, yeah. Um, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. And you've you've encountered a lot of information. You've met a lot of people. You've been to a lot of meetings. 
uh, you're deeply invested in, in the education, knowledge acquisition, education, dissemination, uh, trying to make a difference in, in the, in the health care of patients with pituitary disorders. How, how has it affected your life as a patient? Uh, oh gosh you know, are you more comfortable are you more at peace are you uh, oh that yeah how has it affected your interaction with physicians with uh with your family about your own illness yeah or do you or do you need time to answer that question no you know it's an interesting because <laughs> i will answer it the way i started our chapter for the book that you wrote yeah. that i wrote a chapter for which is the longer i I've, i'm away from my day of diagnosis and the more the longer i the more time i have to learn and interact the least i feel like a patient and more like a normal, you know, oh like, good yeah you know so it's it, i don't know if that happens to everybody but for me and i don't know if it's the fact that you live with it and you know you i feel well you know i'm in, in control so i don't i don't think about it mm-hmm. uh but um that i mean that's it it's I find the the science of of hormones and pituitary disease and uh, the way that that gland works fascinating science. I was talking. I was telling a friend of mine the other day. I said, you know, when you're seventeen, eighteen, and you decide what you're going to do with your life, sometimes you need mentors to guide you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, decided that uh, I wanted to, you know, be in the marketing and and business world and and consumer research. So I did that. Uh, but I, n- now in retrospect, I'm saying, I wish somebody would have just knocked me in the head and say, go take some science classes, yeah. even, though I, even though I was pretty good in science, but sort of turn, turn you on to that, to that world, which I think doesn't happen enough, you know, for right. kids mm-hmm. that are exposed early to, to some of this fascinating work. And, uh, but I'm glad that to have, and, and the other thing I will tell you is that I am very happy that I have something to do after retirement. I could mm-hmm. not not work. So mm-hmm. this for me, it's like my job, but it's such a labor of love that I don't, it, it doesn't feel like work at all mm-hmm. to me. That's it's just really, it's really been uh, uh, rewarding. So we hope to be doing it for many, many more years and yeah. help as so, many people as we can. So rewarding and beneficial. And I think that the, the, thing i want others to consider is that if you get involved you might feel the same thing so yeah we always encourage people to get involved tell their story uh somehow contribute and uh maybe even go to some of these meetings whether you have acromegaly or cushing's or other pituitary disorders where there are patient meetings and uh and engage uh, you know because you're only going to benefit from that right so yeah yeah and it's an indescribable feeling when we get the notes and we get calls um, you know, say so I found your website and I just got, you know, treatment because of it. And, you know, I, it's, it's really, really rewarding. So, Yeah. The thing that happened with me not long ago, maybe six months ago now, is that I was contacted by a physician that I knew from a job 20 some years ago. And uh, he said that they uh, thought his son might have a pituitary lesion. So he ended up getting an MRI um, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and the report wasn't going to be back for a week. So, yeah. you know, there, there's this anxiety and consternation about what does the scan show? And he was searching online and he found the video series of pituitary disease that I had done. He said, so I watched your videos and then I felt comfortable enough to actually look at the films myself and know what I was looking at. Yeah. And I deemed that the scan was normal so we were able to enjoy Thanksgiving weekend together as a family. And then when the report came back and said it was normal, we felt very comfortable that, uh, you know, that the year videos helped us understand how to read an MRI as a physician. I don't read films. So it was nice to sort of have that yeah. guidance as well. So it made me feel like we're doing the right thing. We're putting it out there for people to learn from it and then to use it. However, yeah. uh, whether you're a physician or a patient or a family member uh, and the thing that's there's, amazing there's always yeah, something for you on our on our site so. the thing that's amazing to me is also uh he- hearing what people are saying we sometimes we have no idea how we reach people or how we impact people or what kind of you know things we can accomplish so it's good to hear those things from from our end 
Yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground today. That's uh, yes. awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you uh, for your time. It was great. Yeah. Uh, I think our time is basically up. So Yeah. We we'll tell our members, our uh, audience to stay tuned for the new programs and uh, don't forget to send us your comments and subscribe to PWN, you know, and then you'll get our, uh, our articles in, uh, in your inbox when we publish them. Yeah. Get involved. Uh, I think that you'll benefit by doing so. Thanks everybody for That's listening. Right. Uh, have a good rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.